Support for Georgia College Connections comes from Georgia College, Georgia's public liberal arts university, providing the experience students would expect from a private college with the affordability of a public university. For more information, gcsu.edu. Thank you for tuning in to Georgia College Connections and WRGC 88.3 FM. I'm your host, Daniel McDonald. Each year, the Supreme Court of the United States hears and decides some of the most pressing legal questions in the land. With perennial favorites including race, obscenity, and the separation of church and state, joining new fashions like the citizenship question and racial and political gerrymandering, the 2018-2019 session left court watchers with much food for thought. But do new faces in an emerging arc of long-term storylines mean this year's decisions were a mere taste of what's to come? My guests today think often about these cases in questions and regularly share those thoughts and opinions right here on WRGC. I am delighted to welcome back business law and ethics professor Matt Ressing to the studio. There's so many things to talk about. Just thought we'd start off with a general thought about what did y'all see in this session of the Supreme Court? Is there anything that stuck out, anything that was unusual, um, anything that might guide us through the remainder of our conversation? So I think a lot of people were expecting to see a conservative shift on the court this year. We've had a conservative majority on the Supreme Court for a while, but with the retirement of Justice Kennedy, who sometimes went back and forth, was was called the swing vote of the court, and his replacement with a much more traditionally conservative judge in uh, Justice Kavanaugh, uh, people were really expecting to see you know uh, a lot of momentum on conservative causes. At the same time, though, uh, we have Chief Justice John Roberts, who has kind of made it one of his plans on the court is to make it less partisan, or at least make it seem less partisan. So he's acted as a bit of a counterweight or a balancing force so that even though the court's decisions are skewing more conservative, maybe not as you might expect from a clear conservative majority. And I think that's the main theme we saw uh, throughout this term. I want to recall that at the beginning of this term, back in October 2018, we were still embroiled in um, either the actual or the aftermath of the uh, Kavanaugh appointment uh, struggle. And so I remember at that time there being some conjecture about perhaps the cases that are being granted cert to the court might not be indicative of what was to come when there were actually nine justices seated. When we look at the cases and perhaps the issues that the cases address, I mean, was this, shall we say, a prime time session of a, a nine justice Supreme Court? I think it was. Uh, you know, there are a few cases where they heard oral arguments prior to Justice Kavanaugh joining the court. And in cases like that, he's not going to play a part in the opinion. However, for the cases that I really looked at in preparation for today, which were some of the more contentious cases, he was on pretty much all of them. And one reason for that is that they tend to push those cases a little bit later in the term. You know, not always, but they know they're going to be more controversial. They want to have more discussion of them. So the oral arguments might happen a little bit later. Certainly the opinions come out much later. So really, of all the contentious cases I looked at, there was, there was only one where Kavanaugh didn't play a role and uh, it didn't end up mattering. It was a 5-3 you know, decision where he probably would have cast a dissenting vote that wouldn't have counted anyway. 
as I mentioned in the introduction, and then uh, you know uh, went back to in that last question, is there anything that um, any tea leaves that we can read from this? Looking towards that next session where we do have the full court, but we also still have some court watchers out there expecting a conservative shift. Was there anything to take from this for the future? Yes. Well, one thing I should say, and we'll get into the details, is this was a conservative court term. I don't want to you know, give people the thought that you know, Roberts somehow tamped down all the conservatism of the court and we had uh, you know, uh, it had some liberal decisions. It was pretty conservative. It just wasn't as aggressive as it, it could have been or that some people thought it might have been. This is not just dictated by the personalities on the court. They will be the ones that participate in the arguments, ask questions, write the opinions. But as far as which cases come to the court at this time, a lot of that is dictated by lawyers in deciding to bring these cases. And in fact, few of these cases come to the Supreme Court by accident. Occasionally, you get a criminal case that has worked its way all the way up through the ranks, lawyers working pro bono that are glad to get this exposure and take the case to the Supreme Court. But most of the time, because these cases involve so much time and so much money, you know, just to pay the lawyers to get it through this process, uh, you know, the, the very few lawyers that have high success rates before the Supreme Court, you know, charge a premium for their services. So when you have these cases before the Supreme Court, typically there's some big interest group behind it. So cases on affirmative action, cases on establishment clause, cases on abortion, they don't tend to happen by accident. They're carefully orchestrated. And these lawyers and these interest groups plan on, on should we bring this case knowing when it will get to the Supreme Court? Uh, will there be a conservative majority for us or a liberal majority for us when it gets there? So... They've known for some time, uh, really since the retirement of Kennedy, that this was a great opportunity to bring conservative cause celeb uh, cases. And we are seeing those start to work their way up uh, through the system. I don't think we saw a lot of big ones this year, although we saw a few. Next year, there's quite a few uh, that are kind of loaded for review. There's a few cases involving the administrative state, how much deference we should give to administrative agencies. It's long been a uh, conservative uh, uh, position that we should rein in the administrative state, although they may be rethinking that now that the White House is controlled by a conservative, uh, and particularly a president and executive branch that likes to flex their muscles. We have cases involving DACA, the Dreamers. We have Second Amendment cases. We have cases involving LGBTQ employment protections, tax credits for religious schools, Obamacare and maybe even an abortion case. So I think next year will be a lot more exciting, you know, with, with some kind of big transformative cases than we saw this term. And having a solid conservative majority certainly, you know, tees up some change. Mm. Well, I'm interested to go back to um, the beginning of your response there and learn just a little bit more, if we can, about how a case gets on that docket in any given year. Um, I commonly think of these cases moving all the way through the different levels of, I guess, shall we say, judicial review, and then, you know, finding their way up to a ceiling, which they must crack through to get into the Supreme Court. But is it something a little bit more um, involved in that? And is there an application process? You mentioned that lawyers can almost select when they want to go to the Supreme Court, i.e. select the court that they want their case to be heard by. How does that work? 
There's a typical way cases get before the Supreme Court, but it's certainly not the only way. In fact, in rare circumstances, a case could go directly to the Supreme Court. They can even act as a trial court, although that's incredibly rare. That, that actually happened recently in the water wars between Georgia and, and Florida and Alabama. But most of the time, a lawsuit will be brought in a federal district court, and there may be some forum shopping there. If it's an issue that affects the country as a whole, then a plaintiff could, you know, the lawyers or the activist group that's kind of planning this judicial review could say, I think we got the best shot in the Northern District of California or, you know, the Northern District of Texas. So let's start there. And they may have a choice of where to start the case if it's an issue that affects people countrywide. They start in that district court, they get a ruling, then you typically appeal to a court of appeals. And there it often stops. There's no automatic right to appeal from a appeals court to the U.S. Supreme Court. You have to do what we call petition for writ of certiorari. You have to ask permission for the Supreme Court to hear your case. And most of the time they say no. Less than 1% of all cases that are petitioned to the Supreme Court are actually heard. So to get a case before the Supreme Court, you often have to have what we call a circuit split, meaning a case was brought up in a federal court in one part of the country. It rose to the appeals court level and got a ruling. And then a, case, a similar case was brought in another part of the country, rose up to the appeals court there, and got a separate ruling. What we have there, a lot of non-lawyers don't really understand that this happens, but federal law means something different. In that case, in one part of the country, that means in another part of the country. In fact, the Constitution might mean something different in California than it does in New York if you have this circuit split. And that happens all the time. Uh, those are often the cases where the Supreme Court will step in and say, okay, we got to resolve this. It doesn't make sense that the First Amendment means one thing on the West Coast and another thing on the East Coast. As far as the timing issue, this can also be dictated by state legislatures. In fact, you see many legislatures, including the Georgia legislature, passing you know, heartbeat bills or different bills designed to make it more difficult uh, for women to have an abortion or in some cases prevent them from having legal access to abortion entirely. And it's not an accident that legislatures are passing these rules now. They're passing them knowing that they are illegal under current Supreme Court precedent but they basically want to bait the Supreme Court into taking it on. So we've seen a bunch of states passing laws further regulating abortion, some states passing laws uh, you know, reducing uh, regulations on abortion, with the expectation that within a year or two it will work its way up and be heard by the Supreme Court. And, of course, they're, you know, the conservative states are choosing to do that now because they're betting that by the time it gets to the Supreme Court, it will be a favorable Supreme Court to those arguments. Well, if you are just joining us, you are listening to another episode of Georgia College Connections. And this one, as we do uh, once, twice, maybe even more times per year, we are talking about the Supreme Court of the United States. I'm talking about SCOTUS today with business law and ethics professor Matt Ressing.
Thank you for staying tuned to Georgia College Connections on WRGC 88.3 FM. If you are just joining us, we are talking about the Supreme Court of the United States and those decisions that were decided in this last 2018-2019 session of the court. I'm joined, as I am from time to time, by business law and ethics professor Matt Ressing. Now, in that last segment, we ended uh, with a conversation about how a case finds itself before the Supreme Court, which is essentially subject that I seem to have a question about every time we talk. Maybe I should just go back and review the tapes, or maybe it just keeps on changing from year to year. I thought we'd start off this next session with one that perhaps bucked a trend or uh, perhaps just uh, showed us a different part of these judicial proceedings. And that was the question on the census, a citizenship question, asking those people who would respond to census questions whether or not they're a citizen. Matt, can you kind of talk about how this one uh, found its way so quickly to the Supreme Court. Yeah, so this was very unusual case procedurally for a number of dis- different reasons, and I, I find it a fascinating case. It was called Department of Commerce versus New York, and as you pointed out, it had to do with can the Commerce Department, which is responsible for administering the census, add a question that's not currently on the census or wasn't on the last census, are you a U.S. citizen? As you mentioned, this case did not follow the typical track. It did start in a uh, U.S. district court, but it did not go to a U.S. appeals court. It kind of jumped over that stage and went directly to the U.S. Supreme Court. Now, that is unusual. And the reason the administration gave for why they couldn't wait to go through the appeals court, they had to go before the Supreme Court now, was they had a deadline to print this thing. The census had to be at the printers by July 1st. And that's the argument the government lawyers made to say, we need Supreme Court review. But it did start in a district court. Let me talk a little bit about kind of the history of the census and and really set this up. So the Constitution requires that the population be enumerated, that's their term of art, every 10 years. And Congress is supposed to figure out how to do this and pass laws. Congress then passed the Census Act, which uh, delegates the responsibility to the Secretary of Commerce And gives the Secretary of Commerce broad authority. Basically, okay, we were supposed to do this. We're telling you to do it and, you know, figure out how you want to do it. This population count is very important. It's used to apportion federal representatives. So your your House of Representatives, uh, it's used to allocate federal funds. It's used to draw electoral districts. So it's pretty important stuff, stuff that can be used politically. Not only does the census ask, you know, try and count the number of people, but traditionally they've also requested a wide variety of demographic information on the census. For about 100 years, over 100 years, the census asked about citizenship. So the citizenship question is, is not new in a sense. It's kind of going back to the early days of the census and had over 100 year tradition. It really wasn't until around uh, 1960 that we stopped asking the citizenship question on the census. And and in fact, only on certain types of the census. In 1960, they said, well, we'll do a short census that goes to everybody, and it won't include this question. And then we'll have a longer census that goes to just a small percentage of the population, and that will have this question and a bunch of other questions. And the reason why they took this question off was more that they just didn't think it was that important. They said, look, we got to be efficient here. We really want this population count. That's the important thing. You know, figuring out whether people are citizens is a lower priority. And by then they had a bunch of other ways that they could get information about how many citizens there are in the country. 2000 
they stopped including the question even on the long form. And one of the reasons, this was actually the Census Bureau that decided to stop asking the question at all, is they said this will chill participation in the census, particularly among people of Hispanic descent. Okay, They're going to be a little concerned or confused. Is this an immigration thing, an immigration enforcement thing? And they basically said our data indicates that if we include a citizenship question, particularly Hispanic populations are less likely to participate in the census. So why bother? We really want the right count. So starting 2000, they didn't ask it at all. Wilbur Ross, he was Trump's Secretary of Commerce. He came into office with this plan to ask to bring back the citizenship question on the census. And that was also something you know Trump wanted to do. But he went about it in kind of an interesting way that's key to this case. When you make changes in an administrative agency, you have to publish your reasons for it. People get to make comments. It's part of this administrative process that's governed by a law called the Administrative Procedures Act, or the APA. So the reason Wilbur Ross gave, he gave it in about early 2018, he said, um, the Department of Justice has requested that we ask this citizenship question. It's not me that wants to put it on there. The lawyers at the Department of Justice say we should ask this question because it will help them enforce the Voting Rights Act. We're doing it to protect the voting rights of minorities. And uh, that was part of the administrative record that was built up in making this decision. Okay. Um, once his decision was later challenged okay, by the state of New York, and they said, we don't like this citizenship question. We don't think it's proper for you to ask it. It's going to chill participation in the census. Why do you need to know this? So they sued. Okay? And it went to this district court. Wilbur Ross gave the DOJ letter to the district court. He said, well, here's why I did it. DOJ asked me to do it. And the DOJ lawyers apparently behind the scenes were not super comfortable with that. They said, mm, well, uh, we think you need to provide something else. We think you might be misleading the court if you just provide them with that. Um, so at DOJ's urging, Wilbur Ross, a little bit later, provided the court with a supplemental memo. And the supplemental memo said, yeah, well, I had actually thought about including this back when I started, and I asked DOJ to ask me. Okay, So it didn't originate in DOJ. And in fact, it came out later that he had basically shopped around to several different agencies and said, can you ask me to add this question to, uh, to the census? Um, and this is all delivered through correspondence that I guess at some point the plaintiffs must have FOIA'd for. Yeah, so they can, they can obtain this information through FOIA requests or as part of discovery in these cases. So once it gets the court, you get all this information. But normally in a case like this with administrative agencies, you don't get whatever you want. You only get stuff that's part of the administrative record. You only get things that were used in the decision making. And largely the administrative agency gets to control that. But once Ross kind of admitted that there was this other motive, then the plaintiffs jumped on that. And they said, we need more discovery. We need to go beyond the administrative record. We need to see emails. In fact, we need to depose Wilbur Ross, find out what really happened here. And in almost unprecedented, very odd uh, decision, the Supreme Court said, okay. So Wilbur Ross provides a supplemental memo that looks pretty suspicious. It at least looks like he had some ulterior motive for doing this. It wasn't the region he originally gave. And the district court says, Hang on here, Secretary Ross. 
we think that you have given us a pretext. We don't think this is the real reason. Basically, go back and do it again. We're not going to allow you to put the citizenship question on the census under this current justification. But maybe if you go back and tell us the real reason this time, we'll allow it. And Wilbur said, nope, I'm not going to do that. I'm taking you directly to the U.S. Supreme Court, and they will find that I did everything correctly. Wow, talking about pulling the Monopoly card out on them. Okay, well, there is more to this story, but we are running up against one of our break times, so we're going to take that opportunity right now. If you are just joining us, you are listening to Georgia College Connections on WRGC 88.3 FM. If you've hung with us this long, you know that we are having one of our regular recaps of the most recent term or session of the Supreme Court of the United States. I am joined in the WRGC studios by Matt Ressing, who is a, a business law and ethics professor. I would like to call you emeritus for W. URGC, but uh, you're now with the University of Georgia, just up 441 in Athens. Stay tuned because we've got the cliffhanger on this census case, but we've also got so much more to discuss again on Georgia College Connections. Stay tuned. Staying tuned to Georgia College Connections on WRGC. If you are just joining us, we are talking about the Supreme Court session that was. I am joined, as I am from time to time, by business law and ethics professor Matt Ressing. He is currently at uh, the University of Georgia in Athens, but uh, was one of our very own here at Georgia College. And that's why we still call it Georgia College Connections. But in that last segment, we were talking about the census slash citizenship question that was just decided by the Supreme Court. Uh, Matt was setting us up for the blockbuster turn on this in that uh, he had gotten us to a, uh, a request for more information. I'll let you pick up uh, where you left off. So the Secretary of Commerce has asked this federal district court to allow him to add this question, are you a citizen to the census? So basically he just added it and then is being sued saying he can't do it. The district court gives him a soft no. They say... You know, we don't really buy your explanation. Go back and come up with a better explanation, and and maybe that will be okay. And and what was that explanation one more time? Oh, so his explanation was that the Department of Justice has asked me to put this on here uh, to help enforce the Voting Rights Act. And then it came out later that the only reason they asked him to do that is because he asked them to ask him to do that. So district court's not comfortable with it. They say, look, start this process over. Give us the real reason. Maybe we'll let it by. And he says, no, I'm not going to do that. The Supreme Court will find that I did everything correct. But we don't have time to go to an appeals court and then to the Supreme Court. We need expedited review right now because i got to get this thing printed by July 1st. 
Supreme Court accepts it. They say, fine, we're going to fast track it. But just after they accept it, all sorts of interesting things start happening. First of all, the plaintiffs in this case, the ones that don't want the citizenship question, say, we need some more discovery. We need to know what's going on because you've just admitted this was kind of a pretext or, or that DOJ didn't really request it until you asked them to do it. So we need to know what's really going on. We want all the emails. In fact, we want you to sit down for a deposition. We want to interview you, Secretary Ross. Supreme Court says, no, we're not going to allow that, but we'll allow all the other discovery you wanted. Okay, So they get, they get a lot more information from him. Yeah, he, and why he would they not over. allow that uh, deposition? Uh, just because, uh, you know, depositions are disruptive. They take a lot of time. They said, you don't really need it. You can get this information from other sources. We don't need to make the Secretary of Commerce sit in the room for eight hours and listen to your, you know, answer your lawyer's questions. There are less disruptive ways to go about this. Now, here's where it gets very interesting. Separate from that, we have a Republican strategist who recently died. And I believe his daughter, certainly a relative, who is more of a liberal, kind of estranged from his father, you know, inherits his stuff, is going through his stuff, and finds on a computer a file where he is coming up with this plan to add a citizenship question to the census. And it's alleged that in this computer file and in his emails, he's saying, you know, this will really help Republicans because if we add the citizenship question, it will suppress Hispanic uh, participation and that will allow us to you know, redraw districts and apportion representatives in a more uh, Republican-friendly way. And that's why we need to get the citizenship question on the census. There's even some suggestions that he may, this Republican strategist may have been the one that drafted the memo that Secretary Ross ended up sending to DOJ that said, please request this information for the Voting Rights Act. So he, he may have been the architect of this whole strategy that had the citizenship question, and it had nothing to do with the VRA. That was you know, a fig leaf, if you will, uh, covering the, the real reason for this, which was a partisan reason. So plain, oh, this, uh, this, uh, this woman, this relative that uh, gets the computer file, turns it over to a kind of a liberal, uh, a bunch of liberal lawyers who say, wow, this is a treasure trove. We need to get this in front of a judge. Supreme Court says, you know, we don't need to see any of that yet. But they take it back to the district court judge, and they say, look at all this stuff. And district court judge says, well, it's in the hands of the Supreme Court now. You know, we might look at that later. You just hold off on that. Anyway, it gets out into the press. So that's part of the background of this as well, as it gets decided by the Supreme Court. You mentioned that this was very interesting procedurally to you. Uh, was that necessary, the uh, the depth of your interest right there? I would say that's a, kind of an explosive story back and forth about basically creating a pretext and then taking that pretext to the Supreme Court, then passing that uh, back uh, to them, and then the 11th hour discovery of a hard drive from a Republican strategist. Well, were there any other aspects to it that you found procedurally interesting, before we go to what the decision on this case was. No, I think that was most of the interesting stuff procedure-wise. Again, it's unusual to get the jump over the appeals court, and they said it was because of a time crunch, and that's important, too, for what we'll discuss later for the aftermath of this. But, yeah, the whole, you know, the hard drive, handing it to the liberal groups, it almost sounds like a movie. So it, it was kind of a fascinating setup for what ended up being one of the last cases released this term. 
so we don't build the suspense any longer. How was it decided? What was the outcome of this? Which I think many of our audience members who would stick with us this long into it, they, they do know, although I'm sure they love the play-by-play. Well, the decision is fascinating, too. I, I think, yeah, if you've been following this case, you know that the Supreme Court decided that they could not add this question to the census, at least not right away. They basically said what the district court said is, you know, go back and do it again and this time tell us the real reason. What was significant about this case is that four conservatives on the court would have allowed this question to proceed. And, and they did not find that, you know, the kind of trickery, perhaps, or alleged trickery behind the scenes tainted the question in an unconstitutional or illegal way. Four liberals, you know, cried bloody murder and said, you know, this is unconstitutional, it violates the APA, you know, no way. And it came down to Roberts. John Roberts, conservative chief justice of the Supreme Court. And the way he went about delivering the opinion, which he wrote, was very interesting. In fact, there's a lot of echoes to his treason, as conservatives might say, in 2012 when he upheld Obamacare. So just like in that case, he starts his opinion by reading it as if the government, uh, or in this case, as if the Secretary of Commerce had won, as if the conservative position was upheld. And when John Roberts steps to the bench and reads the opinion, you might assume, okay, this is a conservative decision coming out because he only reads opinions when he's in the majority. And he starts off by saying things like, you know, what the Secretary of Commerce did was not unconstitutional. He has the constitutional right to do this. It didn't violate, you know, certain provisions of the APA. He went through the correct process, or if he didn't, it wasn't a big deal. It wasn't arbitrary and capricious, which is another standard on the the APA. He basically said Secretary Ross had every right to add this question to the census, even if he did it for nakedly partisan purposes. Nothing wrong with that under the Constitution or administrative law. So at this point, like in the Obamacare case, you might forgive the reporters for running out and saying, okay, it's over. And he goes, but he lied to us. You know, he didn't say in so many words. Yeah, he kind of couched it a bit, but he said, I really am not comfortable with this pretext. Even though he could have just come out and said, look, I just want a citizenship question. It will help us know how many more citizens we have. That could have been enough. He could have stopped there. He could have even come out, perhaps, and said, I want a citizenship question for partisan political reasons. But because he didn't say any of that, the reason that he stated was because he wanted it for this enforcement of the VRA, and that was plainly contradicted by the evidence, Roberts said, you can't do that. Go back, start over again, give us the real reason, and then we'll probably say fine. But that's where I want to stop you. Go back and give us, as you've said twice now, the real reason. Mm -hmm. Well, it seems like the real reason has been exposed at this point. What's with the do-overs here? As as a a person who is uh, expected to go out and be at least truthy in everything that I do, why is the highest court in the land allowing a do-over to find a either a, a better lie or uh, perhaps a come to Jehu moment where uh, you decide to tell the truth and that's all right? I mean, why is it okay to lie to the Supreme Court and then you know get to come back again and either concoct another story that may be more pleasing to the court? And that may seem crazy, but that actually is not controversial and it happens all the time. Administrative agencies come to the court they say, this is why we're doing this. And the court says, that's an impermissible reason. And then a year later, they come back and they say, okay, we're doing it again. Here's the reason. So although that may seem strange, that in itself was not that shocking. 
Now, you said maybe come up with a better lie. Of course, he can't do that. If it's if your primary reason, well, not even the primary reason. Was, the problem was that it was his only reason. The Supreme Court, at least, you know, five of them, Roberts and the conservatives, said they don't have to have a really good reason. They could have a bunch of reasons, okay? One of them could be a legitimate reason, and another one could not. One of them could be a lie, and the other one could be the truth. But you have to have at least one truthful, somewhat reasonable explanation for what you're doing, and you have to give that to us. And that's all you needed to do. So he basically said, you know, Secretary Ross, you just got too cute with this. If from the beginning you had just told us exactly what you're doing, that would have been fine. But by looking for political cover, for basically getting these agencies to request it, and once that was exposed, he said that was the only reason you gave. It's clearly not why you did it, and I'm not having it. Just as we think back on the uh, founding myths of our country here, uh, we just must remember that uh, George Washington and the cherry tree was not written into the Constitution. <laughs> that, that's, that's true. Uh, so who knows why this bothered Roberts? And, and, and you know, we talked about Roberts as kind of a mitigating force in this conservative wave on the court. And, you know, practically that's what he did. Even though all he really did was send it back, he said the door is open for you to come back. Practically speaking, he knew that Secretary Ross and all his lawyers had said, look, we don't have time to do this. We had to get this census printed by, you know, July 1st. This opinion, I think, was handed down, you know, near the end of June. It would be very difficult for them to come up with a new reason and then come back to the court with it. And, in fact, that's what happened. They basically timed out. So the practical effect was that this, uh, you know, conservative plot, or at least the alleged conservative plot, did not come to fruition. And just because of you know, really an unforced error on the part of the Secretary of Commerce. All right. Well, and the fact that it timed out, and uh, so too have we in this segment. And so, of course, uh, we are talking about the Supreme Court of the United States. I am joined in the WRGC studio by business law and ethics professor Matt Ressing. We are going to continue on uh, the I guess the crucible of John Roberts when we return back and talk about another blockbuster, shall we say, uh, ruling by the Chief Justice as we continue on this edition of Georgia College Connections. Stay tuned.
Thank you for staying tuned to Georgia College Connections on WRGC. Of course, if you followed us this long, we are talking about the Supreme Court of the United States. I am joined in the WRGC studio by Matt Ressing, a familiar name and voice here, but uh, uh, one from further afield now that he is up uh, with the, is it the Terry College of Business up there at the University of Georgia in Athens? All right. Well, he is our resident uh, Supreme Court watcher and many times comes in and shares his observations with us. Uh, in that last uh, two segments, really, we were talking about what may not have been a super blockbuster case, but it was definitely super in its retelling and all the twists and turns on the uh, a citizenship question, which will not be on this census, although I have a feeling that that is not over yet, even uh, regardless of um, the, uh, the real reasons. But uh, as we mentioned, uh, Chief Justice John Roberts wrote the decision on that. He was none too satisfied with the pretext on that. But our next case has Roberts at the center in the decision making. And that's another political question. This one is about gerrymandering or the redrawing of uh, political lines uh, for your representatives uh, and uh, several other things as well. We saw in this most recent session about two flavors of gerrymandering. One was drawing maps by in including or basing them upon uh, people's, I guess, you know, shall we say, uh, racial profile, who they are as accordance to, I guess, their uh, appearance. But there was also another one on the uh, political lines and drawing them by their political affiliation. Can you talk to us about gerrymandering and how we saw it in these two instances in this last session? Sure. So gerrymandering is a uh, is a kind of slang term for every 10 years, usually in connection with the U.S. Census, uh, politicians redraw their districts. So they figure out who is going to be you know, uh, voting for you know, certain slates of candidates. And as data becomes more and more available, available, and as technology gets better and better, they can look at all this data and they can really figure out within a certain geographical area who are your likely Democratic voters and who are your likely Republican voters. And there is no rule that the uh, district has to be a square or a circle or a blob. You can really draw it any way they want. So they've gotten very creative. And this is not new. In fact, fun fact, the, the name gerrymander comes from this former governor of Massachusetts back in 1812. His name was Eldridge Jerry. And he wasn't the one who did this. It was under his watch, really the first gerrymander. They drew a district that kind of snaked around, had a lot of twists and turns. And the idea was to pick up a bunch of voters that were more likely to vote for the party that was in power. And the end result that they came up with, people said, that looks a lot like a salamander. So this is this weird kind of salamander-like blob and became known as the gerrymander. And now we have, you know, they call them ink splats or, you know. Or shark test. Or... <laughs> exactly. So as long as it's a, you know, contiguous line, you can, you can pull in far-flung areas to get the result that you want. Uh, this is widely seen as bad for the democratic process because it means that the incumbent party is less likely to see a lot of strong, you know, contender in the general election. And therefore, elections really become primary contests, which, you know, pull candidates towards the extreme of either party. 
And in a related sense, it's considered one of the big prizes of winning election in that, especially in these years where we're going towards the census, they will redraw the lines. But really, even beyond the census, actually, uh, gerrymandering happens a lot more often than just every 10 years. And this was one of the reasons the census case was so important and probably the ulterior motive for including the citizenship question. It would provide more data by which lawmakers could draw districts to their political advantage. Now, uh, there, as you mentioned, there's two different types of gerrymandering that have come before the court. One is racial gerrymandering. You know, we have this huge section of population. Some are white, some are non-white. Let's draw one big loopy inkblot district to get all the non-white people into one district, okay? And then we'll have four white districts, and therefore the white voters will have outsized representation to the non-white voters. Well, as I explained it there, that would be pretty clearly unconstitutional. That would be a violation of equal protection, treating people differently on their race. Now, what if you have enough data to say, okay, I don't know, I'm not going to pick them based on color, but I have a pretty good sense that these are all the Democrats. And I put them in all one big ink splot district, and then I have four you know, Republican districts. Is that unconstitutional? Pretty unclear. And then there's the case you were referring to. Well, what if I, I do use race, but I use race as a proxy for politics? I'm not racially gerrymandering because I want to dilute the black vote. I'm racially gerrymandering because I want to dilute the Democrat vote. And I know that statistically African-Americans are more likely to vote Democrat. Does that violate equal protection? So the court has recently tried to wrestle with both of those. Can you use race as a proxy for politics? And then what if it's just political? Is that okay? Well, I think that we've seen a split on the court in this last one in that, of course, they said that it's not all right to do the lines uh, based on race. But uh, what we're about to talk about is the fact that it is all right to just do it on strictly partisan reasons. Uh, One thing that I was looking for my notes while you're describing that, of course, is we found another instance of hard drive man in this one in which the Texas Republican strategist had actually drawn some lines for the racially based redistricting case in which he had done maps for Virginia, which is where the uh, racial profiling case I'm calling that, I know that I'm mixing terminology here, but that the Virginia legislature redrew its redistricting lines and they were accused of doing that based on race. And then as that actually went to court, they were found that, uh, no, it was unconstitutional that they did that. And another twist in this case is that even after the Supreme Court had ruled that that was wrong and that they should redistrict before the next election, uh, the legislators came back and said, we don't have enough time to do that. The twist in our cameo for Hard Drive Man is that on those same hard drives, they actually found maps that he had drawn, as the legislators said, for fun post that Supreme Court case. Yeah, so this is where you run the ad for the data security firm, uh, you know, passport, passport protect all your files. So this kind of shadowy GOP strategist, or at least someone who was not in the political limelight, you know, he wasn't hiding out somewhere, but he had all these ideas for redistricting, gerrymandering, perhaps legal ideas, but to, to tip the balance towards the Republicans. And when he died, it fell into the hands of his, you know, relatives that did not share the same politics, and and it all came out to light in kind of embarrassing fashion. But you're right. This was a 5-4 decision. It was a close 
decision, but Roberts stuck with the conservatives on this one and said that at least when it comes to political partisan gerrymandering, the Supreme Court and the federal court should have nothing to do with it. These are political questions. I don't care if the Republicans are doing it, the Democrats are doing it, and they both are. Uh, Republicans are probably a little more effective at it, but they both were. In fact, there were two cases before the court, one in which it was a Republican gerrymander, one was a Democratic gerrymander. And Roberts and the four conservatives said, we wash our hands of this. This is not, uh, this is not our problem. And is this just a, a semantical argument to an extent as it kind of affects us as citizens of this country in that we most commonly use race as a proxy for perceived political affiliation? And now if we can just uh, cleanse that word from the way that we talk about these things, all bets are off and you can do whatever you want. Uh, you know, I, I think there's something to that. Uh, the Supreme Court is clearly uncomfortable when there is a record, you know, an email or a map or something that expo- you know, explicitly mentions, you know, we are using race. We are targeting African-Americans, even if later they say, look, it's not about white versus black. It's about Republican versus Democrat. But if you can scrub the record in a way or, or you know, set it up so that it is pretty clear that you're not doing this based on race, you're just doing it based on partisanship, then you evade judicial review. All right. Well, remember, you did not hear that here. And so if you were just joining us, you were listening to Georgia College Connections, and we are reviewing the most recent session of the Supreme Court of the United States. I'm joined in the WRGC studios today by Matt Ressing. He is a business law and ethics professor, formerly of Georgia College, now with the University of Georgia in Athens. Uh, We are going to wrap it up in this next session, I believe, so please stay tuned. Thank you for staying tuned to Georgia College Connections. If you've hung with us to this point, I very much appreciate you for uh, sticking around and talking about the Supreme Court of the United States of America, the highest court in the land. Of course, in this episode of Georgia College Connections, I've invited back our resident SCOTUS watcher, Matt Ressing. He is a former business law and ethics professor at Georgia College, but a current business law professor at the Terry College of Business at the University of Georgia in Athens. Uh, Now, one of the common threads that we've seen through the last, I think, four segments now were decisions uh, by Chief Justice John Roberts. Of course, as the Chief Justice, we would expect him to be in the center of our, at least, images of the court. But he has been at the center of a lot of conversation during this last session and the session going forward. Why are we talking about these rulings from his perspective, uh, really nitpicking through his decisions. 
So there are strong indications that Roberts really wanted to uh, maintain, perhaps, the Supreme Court as a nonpartisan body, particularly after the departure of Kennedy, who served as somewhat of a balance of the court being a swing vote. So we had four traditionally conservative justices, four traditionally liberal justices. I'm pigeonholing them, of course, but what I mean is that in divisive social issues, we might expect four on one side, four on the other side. And Kennedy kind of, you know, went back and forth and therefore provides some balance. People suspected Kennedy leaves, uh, Kavanaugh's in, okay, clear conservative majority. And I think Roberts wanted, you know, even if a lot of decisions were going to be have a conservative tinge to it, he didn't want this to be seen as, okay, who, you know, if a president picks, has, you know, five of the judges in his party, then they get whatever they want. And it's clear we're going to be for that party. In fact, early in Trump's term, he kind of rage tweeted at this judge who didn't do, who knocked down one of his decisions. And he said, this Obama judge is, you know, knocking down my opinions. And Roberts actually responded to that, which is very uncharacteristic of Supreme Court justice to get into the uh, kind of social media fray. I think he may have even tweeted it. He said, you know, we don't have Obama judges and Bush judges. We just have a bunch of people that are really trying their best uh, to do what's you know, best for America. So, you know, he, he said it much more eloquently. You know, so one thing I looked at this term is, did he achieve what he said he wanted to do? Did he mute some of the partisan you know, infighting on the court? Did he create a court that we can have confidence in, even if we don't always agree with its decisions? All right. And was that an explicit um, desire of his to mute partisan infighting within the Supreme Court? Or is that still something that we're attributing to him because of, say, the split on the census question versus the political gerrymandering. I mean, it would not be appropriate for a Supreme Court justice to even, um, I guess, say that they are fighting against partisanship, would it? Yeah, I, I think he went there to be confidence in the court. Maybe that's a better way to put it. I think he also wanted a little more genteel court. And part of that may not have been anything Roberts did, but the absence of Scalia. Scalia was known for his very hot rhetoric, and, and not partisan rhetoric, but if there was a Another uh, you know, member of the bench that issued an opinion he didn't like, he would have a scathing dissent or a scathing majority opinion where he would call them out. Um, so with Scalia being off the court, we really didn't see as much of that. They certainly disagreed very forcefully at times, but we didn't see the sort of, you know, kind of uh, personal attacks, you know, uh, that, that you might see with Scalia. You know, he famously told Kennedy that he would hide his head in a bag if he ever issued an opinion like Kennedy did. Uh, and we haven't seen anything like that this term. We also see Roberts maybe wanting to be a swing vote, in a sense. Um, not anywhere near Kennedy. He still was with the conser uh, conservatives, the four conservatives on most of these cases. But I just mentioned his very highly publicized defection on the census case, which had echoes of you know a similar thing he did in keeping Obamacare alive in 2012. He joined the liberals on another case, a death row uh, case re, uh, this term called Madison v. Alabama. So he didn't do it a lot, but when he did it, I think he was trying to bring a little balance to the court. And that, that census case is a good example. I think he could have very easily gone with the conservatives uh, on that and allowed the question, but you know, he, he kind of felt enough is enough. I, I'm, I might approve this, but not the way you've presented it to me. 
are we able to follow a through line throughout his judicial tenure that lets us know that there is a desire to be a swing vote? Or, and I, I know I'm doing a, an incredible disservice uh, to the man, but we just saw the passing of Justice John Paul Stevens. And one of the things that has been elicited in the news reporting of his death is that during his 30-plus year tenure, the court changed, and he himself found himself in a far different place at the end of his tenure from when he was appointed. Is it possible that the court, obviously, but also our society is a wind that John Roberts is finding himself fighting for or against? I think it's more perceptions of the court that he is most interested in. I think Roberts is a conservative. I don't think he's a Stevens or a Kennedy, or I don't think we're going to see a lot of change in his philosophies over the court. But he's also a, a traditional conservative. He's not he's not so much of an ideologue like we might you know uh, suggest that Justice Thomas is, and you know he he's really subscribed to this theory of judicial restraint. That, you know, a legislature may do things that I don't agree with, but I feel I don't have the power or I shouldn't have the power as a Supreme Court justice to overturn them. We also saw other justices doing this. It wasn't just Roberts. In fact, early in the term, there were some ideas that Gorsuch might be the swing vote. Of course, none of them like the label swing vote, but, you know, he might be someone who would be willing to join with, uh, you know, people of other political leanings. So there was a couple cases that involved Native American, Native American treaty rights, that, that it was questioned whether they were still valid. And Gorsuch joined with the four liberal members for 5-4 decisions on that. We saw Kavanaugh crossing lines at least once in this. So I think everyone except for Justice Thomas this term, uh, all the conservative justices, at least stepped over at least once to join the liberals in opinion. And I think that can be a good thing. I think it does still instill some confidence. It makes us think, okay, they're they're doing something other than looking at whether this is a conservative or a liberal cause. Also, when non-lawyers hear about Supreme Court opinions, they just hear the vote. They say, okay, well, what happened? Did they allow it? Did they not allow it? But if you study the court, you know that they write these lengthy opinions. In fact, the decision, you know, 5-4 or yes-no, is often less important than the way they explained their position. Because the majority opinion, you know, which can be hundreds of pages, is the binding precedent. It's what they say about the law that is important for later cases. And the chief justice has a lot of control over that because one of the powers of the chief justice is that when they are in the majority, they can assign the opinion. They can decide who writes the opinion and therefore kind of color the precedent. Also, it, by stepping across the aisle, and by joining with someone of a different political affiliation, they can kind of massage the opinion. So maybe uh, he says, you know, I'll join four liberals, we'll give you a 5-4, you get the result you're looking for. But the opinion is going to be very narrow. And I think he's used that to very clever effect, uh, at least this term, in, in making it a pretty muted term for the court, despite some of these incendiary issues before it. Just taking off from what you were saying there, I do want to mention one of the things that's on my desk to read right now, and this is directly related to the death of Justice John Paul Stevens, is a an essay he wrote, uh, Learning on the Job, which is about how his, I guess, 
his tenure and how he changed and how the court changed, and especially a lot what you were talking about. It's not simply the score at the end of the case in the decision, but what the nuance of the decisions say about the issue. As we leave this broadcast conversation, um, I, I want to ask you, Matt, you observe the court. How are we perhaps changing in our relationship to the court? I think there is a lot of distrust of the court, or at least the thought of the court as a nakedly political organization. And that's nothing new. I think there are some, you know, there are, there's plenty of evidence, you know, throughout history to say, you know, Supreme Court does, you know, whatever the president's the point of them would have wanted them to do, except for these anomalies like, you know, a, a Kennedy or a Stevens whose opinions have changed. But I think one of the most important things that citizens can do is actually read the opinions because it's often not this is good, this is bad. The opinions really dig deep into legal, moral, philosophical issues. Uh, they're beautifully written. All the current members of the Supreme Court are excellent writers. And in fact, uh, in the last 10 years or so, uh, maybe longer, the Supreme Court opinions, I think, have really been written for a common audience. There's certainly some procedural stuff you have to wade through. But on these major cultural issues, if you read the opinion, you probably will understand it. And it may be a lot more nuanced than you would get from the news or a tweet. And I highly encourage everyone to really access the words of these justices as they put them forth on the page. All right. Well, I hope that we are doing our part in giving our audience members entree into uh, this extremely significant part of our democracy here. Matt, as always, I want to thank you for making that trip down 441 uh, and joining us here on Georgia College Connections to talk with us about your observations and a little bit more about the Supreme Court. It's my pleasure. You just heard a conversation about the 2019 session of the Supreme Court of the United States with business law professor Matt Ressing, formerly of Georgia College, now with the Terry College of Business at the University of Georgia in Athens. I know that was one solid hour of conversation about SCOTUS, but we'll soon post a web exclusive featuring Matt's analysis of another case decided during this year's session. You can look for that on our Facebook page or hear that in many other conversations at soundcloud.com slash WRGC. But for tonight, I have been your host, Daniel McDonald. It has been my pleasure spending a portion of this evening with you here on Georgia College Connections, and I want you to know that I look forward to convening with you next time.